try to make it biblical. I'm going to make it, try to make it relevant to a church today and help us to think about uh, the culture we live in and how things are changing. Uh, if I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on any of this, uh, and I do want you to think, though, with me, and, and to be kind of self-reflective and to think about us as a church and thinking about how we as a church can do a better job of reaching our changing world. Um, man, it's kind of hit me more lately. I don't know if it's getting older, if it's my kids getting older and I see, you know, I, I see them, they're out there getting, you know, spreading their wings and flying a bit and trying to figure things out and trying to find a church home and all that, all that sort of thing. And it's got me thinking more about you know, the church and how we do what we do and the importance of it, especially for the next generation. And some of the stuff I'm going to say tonight, I want you to hear it, but I don't want you to be discouraged by it. There's going to be a positive trajectory in this, ultimately, but it's not going to be all positive tonight, okay? So when I go through some of this, I just don't want you to kind of uh, throw up your hands in despair and say, well, let's just quit, you know, let's just give up. We can't, we can't do anything about it. Um, th- there, there is a bleak picture in America now, uh, and I don't think we ought to sugarcoat that. I don't think we ought to say something's true when it isn't. And if there are negative things out there, we ought not be afraid to point our fingers at them, identify them. If we just ignore them, stick our heads in the sand, then we're not going to be really equipped to deal with them, you know. So we are going to talk about some troubles troubling trends in American culture that seem to be picking up some steam, but all of us, you're here on a Wednesday night, we believe in a powerful God, we believe God can do some amazing things, and just because our nation seems to be getting more secular, that doesn't mean God's not acting, and it doesn't mean he he doesn't have a plan, Uh, he is still acting in his church, but we as his people, need to be aware of what's going on so that we can respond to it in healthy ways. Now, I'm going to do a lot of teaching. I'm going to show some graphs. We'll do some, some talking about what's going on. If I have time at the end of this, and I hope I do, I'm going to open it up for discussion. But some of the things I'm going to say between here and then, you're going to want to comment on. And I, I love comments, but I'd like for you to hold the comment, if you don't mind, until that time. Because if I open it up for comments on some of this, uh, you'll, you'll be commenting a lot, which is a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> it's just I won't get to cover this, you know, if we do that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover this uh, material, and then hopefully I'll have some time at the end. Um, the situation in, in American culture now is disturbing in a lot of different ways. I'm not talking about politically, though that's an outgrowth of what we're going to talk about. I'm really talking about changing attitudes towards faith. And when you look at trends, especially over the last, man, this is, this is picking up some steam, and I'll show you some graphs here in a minute about that. But if you look at things that have happened in the last 10 years, it's, it's kind of scary. And it's scary that... The, the, the speed with which this stuff is changing. And I'm talking about the rise of the nuns. I'll talk about that a lot tonight. You may remember a couple of years ago, I preached a sermon or two on that topic, the Rise of the Nuns, which was the previous book that this same author wrote, James Emery White, wrote, wrote a book called The Rise of the Nuns. No, that's, just make sure you know, that's not the rise of the Catholic nuns, okay? There's not an uprising among, in the convents in America. 
It's the rise of the N-O-N-E-S, um, and that is that growing segment of, American, of the American population that has no religious affiliation whatsoever. When James Emery White wrote that book in, I think it was 2014, it was the second largest, if you call it a religious group, it's people who say, I don't have any religion at all, okay? At that time, it was the second largest religious group in America, second only to Catholicism, 2014. He wrote this follow-up book called Meet Generation Z in 2017. In those three years, some additional studies had come out, and the population had changed, and the nuns, the nuns had taken over first place in the American population, um, passing the Catholic Church as far as the number of adherents. In, uh, in Churches of Christ, we are following certain trends in, in American religious culture today, and uh, and I'm sure you've seen some of these various studies that show the population of the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, declining. Um, you have seen, um, especially with what are often called the mainline denominations, Southern Baptist is not a mainline, not with this definition. A mainline denomination, a Christian denomination, is what you and I would call, what, what others would call, um, very progressive on matters of gender, um, mainline denominations are either embracing LG, full LGBT inclusion or they're close to it. So that's a, that's a mainline denomination. I'm not going to you know, name which ones those are, but uh, you probably know. They are declining at an even quicker pace than your more conservative religious groups. Churches of Christ, over the last decade, we have gone from about one, a little over 1.5 million members in America, 1,578,281, 1, 1, to 1,428,566. That's a decline of about 150,000, a 9.5% dip in 10 years. Um, according to some recent studies, nine churches of Christ close their doors every week. That's nine, all right? Nine. That's pretty scary to me. Nine close their doors? Are you kidding me? We're not alone in that, of course. Other faith groups in America are experiencing similar declines, and ours isn't as steep as some. But it is steeper than we want it to be, of course. Uh, the churches that are growing um, are your non-denominational churches. You know, you're familiar with some of them. We have one of the biggest ones in America, in, in Alabama, in Birmingham, Church of the Highlands, um, is growing. Churches like that are experiencing pretty significant growth. So a question that we ought to ask, I think, as a church is, or we ought to reflect on this and think, okay, why is it happening? Is there anything we can do to stop it, or slow it down, to, to stem the tide, to, to make it, help it go in a different direction? Are we willing to make any kind of changes if those changes would help us to do a better job? And if we are willing to make any kind of changes, what might those changes be? Uh, we, I think I know this church well enough to know that we are not open to making any kind of change about what we would say are core 
convictions, right? Gospel convictions. But we as a, a church, I think, ought to at least ask the question, when you take those things off the table, what we would consider to be a matter of faith, you know, a matter of doctrine, if you take those things off the table, then are there different ways we might share the gospel, that we might try to teach about Jesus, we might try to reach out to our community that aren't matters of faith that we might be willing to change if we knew it would help us to reach, especially the younger generation. Those are questions I think that we ought to be willing at least to, uh, to ask. There's this passage in Psalm, Psalm 78, 2 through 7. It says, I will teach... I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories we've heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he, he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Psalm 78. I, you know, you and I are committed to that. This church is committed to that. We as uh, those of us who are parents, you know, grandparents, we're committed to this. We want to pass this on to the next generation. And yet so many of that next generation, in fact, the majority of the next generation is not embracing faith. Many, uh, many people, most people, most kids who grew up in Christian homes and I'm, I'm using this in, in a pretty broad sense now, but in American culture, most kids who grow up in Christian homes turn their back on the Christian faith in some way. Well, not in some way. They turn their backs on the Christian faith. That ought to scare us, you know. And if there's something we can do in the church to help our, par our parents, help our families, then we ought to be willing to do it, it seems to me. Um, 23% of American adults are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, 23%. 19% of Americans call themselves former Christians. The generation that's being affected, mo and we'll talk a lot about this in, in this class over the next uh, three months, but the generation that's being most affected by this is, is Generation Z. Right? And that's, the, that's the generation that is the biggest generation in the next 20 years is going to be the most influential generation on American culture and American faith. Now, I'm not asking for anybody for a show of hands on this or tell me which, which uh, generation you're in, but I want to get this out on there so everybody knows. You, you may know which generation you're a part of. So, you are a part of the silent generation if you were born between 1928 and 1945. Okay? You are a baby boomer if you were born between 1946 and 1964. You are Generation X if you were born between 1965 and 1981. And most people say that's absolutely the best generation ever, by the way. 65 to, <laughs> 1965 to 1980, that's Generation Z. I mean, Generation X. Um, 1981 to 1995, sometimes you'll see it as 1996, are the off-maligned millennials, right? We love millennials. And, uh, and I say off-maligned because there are a lot of caricatures of millennials, and you would 
think that they're destroying the world, you know. Um, 1981 to 1995-96, and then Generation Z between 1996 and 2010. Right, so those—you'll see, give or take a year or two, you'll see those are generally the numbers that are used. And a lot of times, in fact, one of the graphs I'm going to show will break down the millennials into the younger millennials and the older millennials because you see some pretty significant changes between the younger millennials and the older ones. In, in part, at least, they think, because of the uh, internet and because of um, always-on connectivity, you know. And that's making a huge impact on Generation Z, which we'll talk about next Wednesday night, particularly, about um, the influence of the internet on, on our world, on our country. Okay. I mentioned this book. I want to put it out here because this outline tonight will, I want to give credit to James Emery White. Uh, it's, he's doing some really good work in this area. And uh, this is a book that I'm going to use. I'll quote him sometimes and sometimes I'll say something f that I got from him. I don't remember getting it from him. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure you understand that. Okay. So he suggests in this book that we are in what he calls the seventh age. The seventh age. And <clears throat> what, what, what he means by this is based on some some looking at, looking at history, how things have changed as far as the way the church and matters of faith relate to culture, that there have been six identifiable ages, and they each last for three or four centuries, usually. And they follow a similar course. Each of these ages began and ended with some sort of a crisis. Right? So it began and ended with, with a crisis. There are a lot of folks who believe, and, and, and again, and I want to say this with some humility and, and recognizing that we're limited by our you know, understanding. We're trying to look at the moment that we're in and see if it's one of these defining moments. But a lot of people seem to think that we are on the cusp of, of a seventh kind of age, that things are changing drastically in Western culture. And I don't disagree with them because I, you know, I think you see some things happening right now that haven't happened in a long time. And uh, things are changing really, really quickly. There was an essay written, the one I mentioned about the ages. And he talked about these, these crises. And um, James Henry White, in, in this book, he quotes uh, a, a political strategist whose name is D Doug Sosnick. And he said that um, Sosnick said that he believes that our country right now is going through the most significant period of change since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. He goes on to say that years from now, we're going to look back at this period of time and see it as a hinge moment, a connection point that ties two historical periods in time, one before and one afterward. <clears throat> and... I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I think you ought to at least entertain the possibility that he's right. And that because of, uh, you know, our, uh, the digital revolution, certainly we would agree that it has changed so much, you know. And you'd have to go back to, to the industrial revolution to point to something that's changed the world as much as this, you know, with um, what's, going on, what's going on now. And I think it's important for us to be like the tribe of Issachar. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, the Bible says that these 200 leaders, these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take, for us to be aware of what's going on. Now, 
I mentioned the, the crises. There, there are different crises that, that come up, and they are associated with these defining, defining moments in history, particularly as the, the church and faith relate to culture. And these are, these are the four they suggest. Let's talk about each of these just briefly. You think about the history of Christianity and how the epicenter of Christianity has changed. It, it began with a, with a center of the movement, center of Christianity being in Jerusalem, right? Jesus was crucified there. The Jerusalem church sent out missionaries, and so Jerusalem was a center for quite a while. It switched and went over to Rome, obviously, days of the Roman Empire because of the Roman Empire, Roman Catholicism, uh, the influence of Christianity, kind of the epicenter of Christianity moved. I didn't get that. Could you try again? <laughs> moved. I must say, it sounds like I say Siri a lot because she always hears me. Um, so, <laughs> quit listening, Siri. Okay. So, it shifted from, from your perspective, shifted from Jerusalem up to Rome, right? I don't know if that's right geographically, but, but, but over here to Rome, all right? And then as, as history went on, it, it, it went farther north and was in Western Europe. A lot of stuff going on with the Protestant Reformation in Germany, Switzerland, England, all that. And then it shifted across the pond, and for a while now, the epicenter, the, the biggest missionary-sending country has been the United States, you know. And so the United States has had a lot of influence on the course of Christianity for, uh, I don't know how long, you know, 100, 100 years, maybe, maybe more, probably 100 years. But now, you, you guys may already know this, but the, the epicenter of Christianity, I'm speaking on a global scale here now, right? Not just, not just churches of Christ, but, but Christianity as a whole. It's shifting now to the global south. Fastest growing, fastest growing segments of Christianity are all in the global south. Uh, we would we call a big part of this developing countries, you know, developing nations. So that's a pretty big deal. That's a, that's a really big deal. South Korea is sending out missionaries like crazy. The underground church in China is growing. Church is growing tremendously in Africa. It's growing in South America. It's growing in other parts of Asia. And so Christianity, the, the epicenter, is shifting away. We're becoming more secular uh, in, in America, and so we're exerting less of an influence, and the influence is shifting to another epicenter. All right, second one is the rise of Islam. A lot of questions here about what's going to happen. You know, we've, we've seen the last few years with, um, with ISIS, with al-Qaeda, with the Taliban, with um, radical versions of, of Islam in the last 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. Um, and there are a lot of questions about what that's going to look like over the next 20 years. You know, is Islam going to be more of this radical form as it as it grows and as their you know their family the, the family size of Islamic families a lot bigger than those who come from a Christian background. So as the population changes, what's that Islam going to look like? That's a big, it's obviously a crisis point. Questions about what that's going to be. Are they going to be more of a, um, a peaceful form like Indonesia? Are they going to be more of a, uh, an Al-Qaeda kind of form, you know, an ISIS kind of form? So big question there. Third one, and this is obviously this is affecting uh, religious forms in America, is the radical redefinition of marriage and family. Um, been, there have been deviations from this, of course, over the course of Christian history, but nothing like what we're seeing right now. 
um, within Christianity and the way that Christianity in Western countries is being influenced by these changing definitions of what marriage and family look like. It was assumed and has been assumed for many, many years that marriage was between a man and a woman, right? Whether or not we lived up to that ideal, you know, a man and a woman staying married together for life and raising kids within that nuclear traditional family, whether or not we did that well, at least in concept, it was agreed to be the best way. And now that is all shifting dramatically. I mean, you and I are experiencing this in our country. We, we think, you know, we, what in the world? You know, what, what's going to happen with this? How, how's this going to change over the next 20 years or so? And, you know, as an aside here, uh, that's going to be, I don't know if you, you probably agree with this. Um, that's going to be a huge thing in churches. It's, it's, um, it's, it's affecting many churches of Christ now. I don't know if you are aware of that, that there are, um, there are churches of Christ in the South who are embracing, you know, you know full-on affirming LGBT. And so, anyway, that's going to that's gonna continue to be a crisis point. Churches are going to have to decide, especially as our country changes and laws change and maybe there's... Uh, less religious freedom, then it's going to be a crisis point. The th- fourth thing is what it means to be human. With scientific developments on, on cloning, on stem cells, on um, transsexuality, uh, you look at the history of the church, and there have been different crisis points where they've had to kind of come together and figure out, okay, what do we believe? Um, Christology, or what we believe about Christ. So you've heard of the Council of Nicaea, or the Council of Constantinople, some of those early councils in the 4th century, and so, um, you know, as, uh, as, the church, as the church kind of codified what it believed about certain things, about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and so on. That was, that was a big one. You had, um, you had um, a pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, what, what we believe about the Holy Spirit. Uh, now it's anthropology. It's um, this crisis point for us now in the church. It looks to be, like, what do we believe about what it means to be human? What, 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 what gender means? Um, what, what does it, you know, the creation of life, you know, cloning, stem cells, um, the non-binary approach to, to gender and so on. These things are, are going to be going to be a big deal, are a big deal. All right, so th- those are some of the crises that we're facing now. White goes on to talk about the second, what he calls the second fall, the second fall. He believed the first fall, uh, you, you, you know, go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you read about the fall, and uh, that is when God ex- expelled us from the garden. James Emery White says that we are in our culture now experiencing what he calls the second fall, which is our expelling God from our culture. So I think that's a kind of a neat way of thinking about it, not that we can expel God, obviously. We can't push God anywhere, at least as far as God's nature and God's presence is concerned. But I hope you understand the metaphor that he's using. God expelled us from the garden. We are now as a culture, as a country, as a Western society, Western civilization, we're trying to expel God from you know, from my experience. Um, and, and um, you know, things happening now, still most people believe in God, still up around 90%. Hadn't, that, that, that hadn't changed a whole lot. 
uh, with the rise of secularism, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about, the number of people who believe in God, who say they believe in God, hasn't really changed that much. It's gone down a little bit, but it hasn't changed that much. But what has changed is this, what White calls um, functional atheism. You can figure out what that is from the name. Functional atheism is that when you look at people's lives and, and how much they allow God and who he is and what he wants, what he's revealed to us, to define what they do, to determine what they believe and how they live, we have a lot of functional atheists. Um, I believe in God, yes. But I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, with reference to sexuality, with reference to the accumulation of material things, with reference to my um, attitudes toward people who are different from me, you know, and so on. Uh, functional atheism. Kathy Lynn Grossman, she was the uh, co-researcher of the, that Pew Research study that was done back in 2008. It was a big deal. Talking about the rise of the nuns. But she said, she said, um, people today aren't merely secularized. They're not thinking about religion and rejecting it. They're not thinking about it at all, end quote. If that's true, that's a bit scary. They're not, if I can paraphrase what she's saying, you know, people aren't saying, well, you know, I've thought about religion, I've weighed it, I've, um, you know, considered the pros and the cons, I've considered the evidence for it, but I'm just turning my back up. No, they're not even thinking about it. They haven't gone through this, like, rational process where they've considered the evidence of it. It's just not a thing to them. Now, if cornered, do you believe in God? Yeah, yeah. But they haven't really gone through this rational process of rejecting religion. They just don't even think about it. Functional, functional atheism. Use this expression again. We'll, we'll talk more about it as we go along, but the rise of the nuns. Um, here's where I want to I talk to you about our culture now and, and show you some charts. I hope you see the purpose of this. We'll refer back to this as we go through this. But I want just to talk about American culture for a minute and what it looks like. Everybody in this room has been affected by this. We all know people. We've got, we've got kids. We've got grandkids. Uh, we've got nephews and nieces. We've got people who grew up in this church. Um, and, and we've, we've got, um, you know, Gen Z, for me personally, you know, I, I talk to my kids and I, and I see some of these characteristics of Gen Z, which we'll talk about next week. I see it coming through in, in the way they think. It's just a little bit, it's a little bit different from, from the way my generation thinks. You know, I've got a couple of young millennials. I've got a couple of, uh, couple of Gen Zs as far as my kids are, are concerned. And it's, uh, it's just interesting. It's interesting the way things change and the way thinking changes. So here's what's going on. Can you see that? Yeah, okay, you should be able to see this. Now, I want you to notice this with me for, for a minute. Let's just think about it. We've got, all right, we got enough time. All right, that ain't going to see. All right, percentage of Americans claiming no religious identity. Okay. So, I want you to notice on the far left, see the 1940s? 
the percentage of Americans who claim no religious identity in 1940 or so, 1930s and 40s, was about 5%. Now, in 50 years, it didn't change much. 1940 to 1990, it only went up by 3.1 percentage points. That's not a big change in 50 years, not really. Uh, for, for me, I, I think about in my own life, uh, my dad was born in 41. Uh, Bailey, our oldest, was born in 93. So from the time that my dad was born to the time that Bailey was born, uh, it didn't really change that much. The next 18 years, it almost doubled. You see that? From 1990 to 2008, it went from 8.1 to 15%, so it almost doubled. In the next four years, <clears throat> from 08 to 2012, it went up another 4%. So you think about that. From 1940 to 1990, it went up three points. From 2008 to 2012, four years, it went up more than it had gone up in those five decades from 1940 to 1990. Percentage of Americans claiming no religious identity. And notice carefully that column on the right uh, is adults under 30. Now, this was 2017, so this data is just a couple years old. But um, if anything, based on studies that are coming out even more recent than this, uh, that number, and I'm going to show you one in just a second, <clears throat> it's, it's higher than that. So adult, adults under 30 on the far right, so a third. So you compare adults under 30 with, this is 2012, 19.3% um, of Americans, 33.0% of those under 30. Okay, now that's 2012. So some more studies were done. These studies are, they keep being done. And just notice, notice here. In the uh, two years, so that last one went through 2012. This one goes through 2014. And so from 2012 to 2014, it went up another 4%. So you notice that. I don't know if you guys like graphs, like numbers. It's fascinating to me. Um, from 2008 to 2012, it went up 4%, 4% points. In the next two years, it went up an additional 4%. So you see what I'm seeing here? Um, in the five decades from 1940 to 1990, it went up 3%. From 1990 until now it has tripled from 8% to, my guess would be 2020, it would be higher than 24%. I don't know for sure. This is the rise of the nuns. So you notice that last number, adults under 30 in 2012, it was 33% of them claimed no religious identity. That number went from 33% to 36% over those next two years. Okay, this will be a little bit, well, hopefully you guys can see this all right. This is, I'm not going to go through all these numbers here. If you want this, I'll send it to you. But um, just looking at the difference between the, the generations. So notice silent generation on the far left. That's the left column, younger millennials on the far right. And the difference in the way they behave religiously. So pray daily, about two-thirds of silent generation folks, 1928 to 1945, they pray daily about 39% or so of the younger millennials. Uh, attending service, services religiously or uh, weekly, 
from 51% to 28%. Uh, believing in God, 92% to 80%. So that, that's number, that number's not as drastic. You know, 92% of silent generation believe in God, and still about 80% of the younger millennials believe in God. So that number has gone down. It just hasn't gone down as drastically as the rest. You know, most of them still believe in God. It just doesn't affect them as much. But you look at the, you look at the next number, who believe in God with absolute certainty, 71% of the silent generation down to 50, about half, exactly half of the younger millennials. Believe in heaven, 75% to 68%. That number, again, that's not a big difference there, right? Uh, most people still believe in heaven. Believe scriptures are word of God. Well, you, you can read the data yourself. Believe in hell, that number is about the same for every generation, around upper 50s or so. Religion is very important in their lives for the silent generation folks, 67%. Uh, it's just a little, little bit more than, a little less than, or a little bit more than half, I guess, of the uh, younger millennials believe that religion is very important in their lives. One, one thing people were speculating, especially maybe 10 years or so ago, people were speculating that Okay, this is true of the younger millennials or true of the, maybe even true of the older millennials, but as, the, as people get older, they become more religious, have kids, start going to church. The data is not showing that, by the way. Uh, the data is not showing that, that um, millennials, as they get older and have families, that they're becoming religious. That's one thing that I had thought about the data is it's probably skewed because, you know, in your 20s, you get out of college or whatever, and you, you, you enter the workforce, you don't have kids to worry about yet, and so you, you know, have fun, right? And then you settle down. You have a family. You start getting more serious about life and all that. The data is not suggesting that that's happening, just in case you were wondering about that. Uh, some of the, I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. Decline in church attendance, no, no big shocker here. Probably not quite as drastic as that uh, graph indicates or at first glance maybe because it's going from around 62% in 1994 to around, what, 53% in 2013. So from 62 to 53, that's not, that's not a drastic number, you know. I guess for, this, for me, this is more of a trend, and, and you see those other things that are happening uh, you'd suggest that this probably is going to keep going. That's 2013, so I'd be interested to know what that number is in 2020. You look at um, Gallup poll did uh, kind of a uh, five different combined five different measurements of what they call religiosity, like church attendance, uh, how important is religion to your life. I don't know the five criteria, but it's five different ones merged into this to this one graph, and um, and it's similar to the last one. So not a not a really big Shocker there. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Five gallon measures. Um, this is not going to surprise you at all, but our cousins across the pond are a little bit ahead of us, or behind us, depending on how you want to talk about it. They're a little bit less religious than we are. And you see these trends happening in Western Europe. We typically are a little bit behind them, a little bit more religious, but we are following in their footsteps. So percentage of nuns in the United Kingdom, it has gone from 3, 1963, 3%, to 40, almost 45% in 2015, and about two-thirds of adults 25 and under 
are nuns, you know, claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. So you guys, those of you who've traveled to the UK, who've traveled to Western Europe, you've, you've probably seen, you know, evidence of this. Uh, still religious in some sort of very superficial way, you know, but it's being removed from the public uh, because of these, uh, some of this stuff going on. Okay, so what's happening? So what are some of these driving forces? There are three of them I want to talk about for uh, just a couple minutes. Three, three things that are happening. Uh, one is secularization. All right, what does that mean? This definition, sectors of society and culture removed from the domination of religious institutions and symbols. Um, we need to... The, the, the society and culture needs to be less religious, needs to be less dominated by Christian forms or whatever form, you know, so uh, we want to get religious institutions and symbols out of the public sphere, you know, all that. Second one is privatization. Privatization, the process by which a chasm is created between the public and private spheres of life and spiritual things are increasingly placed within the private arena. And so it's fine for you to be religious, but don't bring it to work with you. You know, don't talk about it at work. Um, I, was, I was listening to, watching uh, an interview with, uh, with uh, Joe Biden a couple of days ago, and um, I think it was in the, a town hall meeting in South Carolina before the primary there. And it was just interesting. I was, it, and it was, it, it, was, it was talking about his faith. It was talking about his Catholic faith. But I was, I was fascinated by, he was asked a question by, a, I think it was a priest, a reverend, maybe not a priest, he was asked a question about his faith, and, Biden, and, and Mr. Biden was responding and talking about his Catholic faith. It was important to him. And, but several times, at least twice, during a very brief response, he said, now, I'm not trying to proselytize. You know? And he, he made a point to say that a couple of times. I'm not picking on, uh, at all, Joe Biden. Um, that would be true of any candidate on either side of the aisle, I think, that I know of right now. Talking about faith, it would be their faith is important to them, but they want to be very careful that they're not trying to proselytize. That's this privatization thing. We don't want to be guilty of trying to convert anybody to my way of thinking. It's a very private thing for me, you know, that, that sort of thing. Privatization. And then the third one is pluralization. And, uh, and that's where you've just got a whole bunch of different ideologies and faith options competing for your attention and what I didn't put on the screen here is that you probably know is that each one of these, this is where culture presents it, each one of these is equally valid. So it's not just that you've got a lot of options to choose from. I, I'm guessing you and I don't want to force people to be Christians. We don't want America to be a Christian nation in the sense that we've got the government telling people they've got to be Christian. That didn't work very well in history, right? We don't want that. Um, so we're not saying people don't need to have choices. It's just interesting that the way it's presented now and the way people just grow up assuming is that we've got all these choices and each one of them is equally true because none are true with a capital T. They're all true with a lowercase t, with capital, capital T and lowercase t, right? So that's uh, the idea of, um, of pluralization. Okay, quickly. A squishy center. So here's what's... Here's what's happening. This, these numbers are not going to break down exactly like this, but for convenience sake, I've got two numbers, one on the left, one on the right. Let's just say that American culture, and these aren't too, too far off. Let's say that American culture 
right now, you've got, you got two ends, two, two extremes here. And you've got, you got people who are hardcore secularists, all right? They don't believe in God. They're pretty vocal about it. Don't talk to me about religion. I don't want anything to do with that, all right? You've got those. Then you've got 25% of Americans who are on the other extreme. They are... Um, their, their Christian faith is very important to them. Read their Bibles, they go to church, they say that Christian's who I am, it defines who I am, it determines my decisions and all that. So they're equally vocal about their faith on the other end. All right, so those numbers aren't exact, but, but it is interesting. By the way, uh, a lot of data is showing that people, people who are religious in America are becoming more religious. They're, they're getting... It's probably because they're feeling pressure and feeling opposition. So if you're going to be a Christian, you might as well be one, you know. <laughs> Don't halfway be one. And so people who are Christians, are, they're, they're, they're being more vocal about it. They're getting more religious. People who are secular are becoming more secular. They hate the influence of Christianity, all right? So what's in the middle of that is what he calls the squishy sinner. And that's the 50% of people who don't belong in either camp, Okay. So, so what's happened in the last 20 or so years is the squishy sinner is no longer feeling cultural pressure to be religious at all. And so it's trending in the secular, in the secular end of this. So what happens with Christians is when we want to talk to people about Jesus, when we want to teach people, it is really, really hard to talk to a secularist. Those are the people who won't talk about it. But the squishy sinner, people who are kind of ambivalent about it, those are people in the past that we've been able to talk to about Christ and they've been receptive to it. But what's happening now is this cultural pressure of secularization, pluralization, and so on. It's pushing people who previously might have been open. It's pushing them away because they don't feel any pressure to be outwardly religious or to attend services or anything like that. All right, so let me close. Obviously, you know, in this class, we're going to talk about a response to this. But I wanted to set the stage for you tonight in helping us to see and aware country is, what's going on, uh, you've experienced this, and you've probably got many anecdotal kind of stories here of something that you've gone through at work, and you're like, yeah, I can relate to that because you've got this policy at work, you feel this pressure at work not to talk about this or, or, or not to say this or whatever, and so you've kind of sensed this. Well, the data confirms what you've experienced, that our, our society is changing a lot, and there, there are some pretty good indicators that it's changing drastically. Next Wednesday when we come back, we're going to look at more closely at Generation Z, which, by the way, is the biggest generation. I said this at the beginning. It is now the biggest generation. It's bigger than the boomers. It's bigger than the millennials. Um, it's the biggest generation, and it is so different the way they think, the way they process, the way they think about matters of faith. And they're born between what is it, 1996 and 2010, so the oldest what does that put them at? 24. Oldest uh, Gen Z is 24-ish. You know, the youngest ones are still in elementary school. But as those born in the late 90s who are in their 20s now, as they're getting out of college and entering the workforce, starting to have families, the anticipation is, this is sometimes called the last generation. 
Uh, a lot of folks are calling it the last generation, that we're not going to break it down in these neat 15-year segments anymore after this because culture is changing so quickly because of our 24-7 connectivity, always on Internet. We're connected to people all over the world that you cannot break it down into 15-year, 20-year segments anymore, that things are changing so quickly that it's more of a year-by-year thing, that this is evolving quickly. And you see how, what direction it's going in, right, as people think about faith. All right, I've thrown a ton out there at the wall. Maybe a little bit of it will stick, and um, you'll have thoughts you want to share. I didn't leave us any time at all. Well, fancy that. Um, you probably got thoughts, and I'm not going to, this isn't going to be just a lecture every week, but I, I wanted to get this out there, kind of a foundation, so that we can build on this in coming weeks, but I, I will, uh, I promise to give you a chance to kind of give some input on this. Thanks so much for listening.